This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... GM Intervention Modes. Sonic Attacks in Cuba. The Kibbo Kift. And Twin Peaks The Return. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once again into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we have, I guess, two models. One in which Peter Frampton tells you he's coming alive, and the other (laughs) in which you determine from a thousand tiny clues that Peter Frampton is coming alive. Robin, did that sum up the difference between direct GMing guidance and working within the world? Uh, it did in an atmospheric sense. Sure. And what better sense can there be? There can be no better sense. The second best sense would be the sense of an example. Right. Um, and so uh, this is a, a, a classic GM uh, technique uh, topic that we're uh, tackling because we're all about the service here on on the podcast. So I thought we would delve into a perennial question, one of those ones that almost always gets looked at in a GM masterclass, which is the difference between, uh, let's say, for example, and I know this is unknown to you, Ken, uh, but let's say that one's players are turtling, that they've uh, gathered uh, themselves into a, a place and they're just sort of Uh, disputing what to do and they can't come to a conclusion and uh so there's two theories as to how to get things moving as a gm how to not get things back on track because that implies that there's a track but to nudge things in any direction that might be interesting as opposed to the one that they're currently in which is no direction so uh you can do the classic raymond chandler thing and have the guy bust through the door with a gun which would be having the world solve the problem or you could uh, directly intervene uh, on a uh, what you might call a meta level, although I think that's a term that has all sorts of weird problems with it, uh, and just say, well, y- you know what? Uh, maybe you need to get out of this bunker and go look for more information because you can't decide what's going on because you you need more uh, info to go on. So you would say the difference between a diegetic prod and a non-diegetic prod, right? Uh, yes, you could say that. 
so uh, let's all make diegetic a, a role-playing term. A diegetic, of course, comes from uh, it's a filmic term where a diegetic music is if someone puts a record on in the scene and you hear the music in the scene, that's arising from the world. Whereas if it's just uh, dropped in on the soundtrack and the characters aren't hearing it, that would be the, the non-diegetic uh, soundtrack drop, the needle drop, as it were. So it's not an either or. Uh, some of these, uh, sometimes you want to do, have the world solve the problem. Sometimes you just want to uh, break in as a GM to uh, say something. So uh, how do you determine, Ken, which one of those techniques to use? A lot of it is just which one do you think is going to work fastest? In in many cases, if the problem is they're wasting time, you need to get them off the diamond back into play as opposed to endlessly going or chewing over the same uh, flavorless meat. So in terms of a time constraint, you either have uh, up your sleeve a good informative uh, encounter that will, you know, bust through the door with, uh, with a gun, or you just say the phone rings and it's your informant and he's got more information for you. And he'll only meet you out at the corner of wandering and monster Avenue. And that gets them off the dime. Or you say as the GM, look, get off the dime, stop wasting time. We've got an hour until uh, the game's over and I want to get a fight scene in or whatever. And then they'll, they'll usually move. Uh, I think, my preference aesthetically is for the diegetic prod just because um it uh allows the the fiction to continue with the least amount of stress but you could do a quasi diegetic prod where you say as the gm you guys have been screwing around uh everyone give me the reason your characters are tired of screwing around and go out to do something and that would be you know it comes from within the scene but they were prodded by the director if you will to uh emote right right uh, and in that example is sort of in the middle of the continuum because you are not explaining your reason for doing that. You're just doing it, but that it's implicit in the suggestion that you uh, move on. So uh, I think one of the tests then, I think, first of all, the uh, diegetic prod, as we are now calling it, uh, is the earlier development in role playing that it is still like. Uh, it's the one people usually cite. Why well, just have them hit by a lightning bolt when they're misbehaving or, or what have you? And the question is, as you suggest, what is the most efficient, i.e. fastest way to do that? And um, when you're thinking of efficiency, you're thinking not only of whether uh, you can immediately get to something happening, but whether that something happening itself leads somewhere. So if the guy coming through the door with a gun is in fact just a wandering monster, is a uh, you know a bunch of orcs who have nothing to do with the uh, storyline. Assuming you have a storyline, um, if it's total sandbox world, problem solved. Yeah, right. And, and, and anything you dig up in a sandbox is is a thing. Uh, but if there is a broader plot line that you're trying uh, to have the uh, players interact with, that just a random thing happening that has a random thing happen is. Uh, it gives you the illusion of movement, but in fact, you're not any closer to interacting with the storyline and in fact, may wind up further away. Uh, whereas just breaking in and say, okay, move it along, make a decision, uh, is inherently super fast. It's six syllables and then it throws it back onto them. And then you, so you have the issue of the aesthetic preference of it does kind of break everybody's, uh, engagement with the world, but uh, you may also decide uh, that they need to have their engagement with the world broken a bit because their engagement with the world has led them down a rabbit hole. So that if they're, for example, 
the reason they're not moving is that they're shooting down every possible idea uh, and they're kind of in a rut or there's sort of an underlying sort of communication problem between two players or, or whatever. If the problem is happening on the non-fictional level, perhaps it is preferable then to uh, to have that be the test in addition to how quickly you can get something going is ask yourself, is this a problem of the story or is this a problem of the game? And so the, if it's a problem of the game, then you probably have bigger fish to fry just structurally because you have to either uh, work within the work with the players to provide them more incentive, either as, as story wise or rules wise or character wise, or you have to rethink, you know, maybe the plot line you thought everyone was interested in is one no one is interested in, including you, or only you are interested in it, in which case it's not going to succeed as a as a game experience regardless, because um players uh quite rightly want agency for their characters. And so the degree to which I mean, I, I, I guess the scope of the problem is something you need to look at, but, um, hopefully, <laughs> you know, we've gotten to, the, we're, we're having this problem not, um, constantly or not continuously, uh, but just maybe one night when everything seems weird or one night when they've, uh, scared themselves very badly by the revelation that Dracula is indeed everywhere or whatever it happens to be. And or the players are, t- are tired. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, have, have talked themselves into the ground or, uh, you know, somebody's in, uh, you know, one of the conflicts that comes up perennially between players is sort of more in, uh, sight this time. And so I guess the, the number one question then I would ask whether choosing a diegetic or non-diegetic prod is, is this happening at the table or is the pro, is the problem in the world? If the problem's in the world, there must be a world solution to it. If the problem is at the table, there should probably be a table solution to it. So if the or I've mentioned some ones that are emotionally fraught, but also just the classic, oh, you've forgotten an important clue. Uh, you could have the informant call them up to remind them of the important clue, but it's it solves the efficiency question more if you just say, remember, I I, I think you're leaving out the uh, the wallet that you found back in the tavern, and if you tell them that, that will that's not in character, but that's a problem at the table that you're solving at the table. I guess the next sort of question is what sort of diegetic means can you use to, uh, move people, uh, move the players off the dime and into something else. And those would, I guess, come down to either a threat at where they are now, uh, the stick, if you will, or a carrot promise of a reward. If they go somewhere, the, uh, the carrot. Although you can also, of course, have a threat to something that they value that is outside their their bunker, uh, which is sort of a displaced stick. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and another uh, tip also is never give them an impregnable bu- uh, bunker. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's 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 a key. That's a key plan. I mean, at the very least, the guy who comes in and you know replaces the snacks in the bunker could be uh, vulnerable to uh, mind control by the vampires or whatever. And so right. you 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 do need to be able to. Uh, just as the GM allow the game to get to the players wherever the players are, because that's the whole point of the game is the interface between players and 
uh, danger, adventure, mystery, excitement, horror, whatever the kind of game is, love, whatever the game's about. And if they don't interface with it, then no matter how much fun they may or may not be having playing their players bickering, they're not actually that you, you don't have to be there for that as the GM. You can just say, well, you guys could have done this on email. Um, right. You don't need me. Uh, right. And so, uh, the, uh, p- possible ways to, uh, uh, get them moving are to, uh, as you suggest, have a threat come at them, have them learn about a threat somewhere else. Or another thing which we've already uh, looked at is uh, dangle more information in front of them. And so the classic, you, know, you mentioned already, you get called or, uh, you know, you have a, it, it helps uh, sometimes if one of the members of the group can have visions, you could have a, a vision of something uh, happening somewhere. Uh, if you look at uh, sort of episodic, uh, problem solving television. Uh, there's always a, uh, the headquarters always includes a communications console. And, uh, this may be true, uh, even in a fantasy world. You know, your bunker has a scrying device that, uh, uh goes off and alerts you to. So give, uh, if you do let people have a hideout, uh, give them a, a mean, uh, a phone or something that can ring to get them moving toward information so that it's not always you're being attacked or, uh, someone else is being attacked, but something new has happened. There's been a new development in the case. There's been another murder. There's a, a uh, an assault on the castle or, or whatever it is, something that can uh, get them moving. And so you might uh, decide ahead of time if you have a, a group uh, where uh, uh, they have trouble moving, uh, you can uh, have a, something that comes into the storyline. But of course, this is not the only problem that people sometimes try to solve with the world. Uh, for example, there's a classic bit of possibly not so great uh, DM advice in the first edition uh, AD&D uh, uh, DM's guide with, if you're annoyed by the players, have them hit by a 3d6 bolt of lightning, <laughs> <laughs> which is the classic bad example of a diegetic prod. Uh, and so, and, and I think the more you're getting toward trying to solve truly dysfunctional play by having the world come at them, that's, uh, just like yelling at a at, at your pet when they uh, you know drag the dog kibble all over the uh, floor, the dog doesn't know why you're yelling at it. Right. <laughs> so it's clearer if you say you know uh, it's time for you to let uh, Janie talk, or uh, you know it's uh, maybe you better uh, cool this down and and change the subject, or uh, you know maybe this uh, and this is more of an issue in newer games where players are encouraged to introduce narrative developments. If there's an air development that comes in, uh, you know, a big, uh, you know, now an example of a non-diagetic prod is the X card that people can have at the table and hold up and go, nope, I don't want that uh, element that you're introducing into the narrative to be introduced so that uh, there's a means for the, uh, the player doesn't go, okay, well, that character you just introduced, I don't like him, I'm going to kill him. That would be an in-world solution. But holding up the X card going, no, this is not fun for me if you have a character like that coming into the narrative. Uh, is an example of a, a non-diegetic prod that cuts through the problem really quickly. You also uh, can use NPCs as as diegetic prods any number of, of ways, either as sort of the mouthpiece for the gods, uh, the, the NPC who's there uh, says, um, it seems like we're just dicking around and not solving anything. And then the players recognize that as a voice from the GM, even though it's actually the voice of their beloved halfling, uh, Steve. Um, but, uh, 
it also can be uh, a character that says something like, gosh, if we only knew who, who made those footprints, we, we'd be farther along in this adventure. And fortunately, my uncle is the world's finest footprint, footprintologist. Maybe he can help us or provide a roadmap, a, a path, an, an option, any number of things. Uh, in addition to simply providing danger. Or being, you know, ant made as, as a threat somewhere, uh, be, because the players should be rewarded for uh, putting up with your NPCs, and the reward ideally comes in the form of information, uh, as well as social rewards within the community. And social rewards within the community can actually be another way to get people off the dime, because um, the you know the bar that they've been drinking at for free because they're fearless monster killers, the, you know, the the bartender. Uh, the, or the barmaid or whoever they're friends with there at the bar comes around and knocks on their door and says, I noticed you hadn't been down the bar. And a lot of the regulars are saying it's because uh, you're scared of ghouls, but that can't be not you guys. And, you know, maybe just a little sort of, we believe in you type speech from an NPC um, as corny as it may seem can actually remind the players. Oh, right. Hero. It says so right there on the you know front of the book. Right. Well, speaking of uh, footprints leading to the distance, I see a set of footprints that lead us through a commercial to our next segment. Hey, Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The retinal scan that you had to undergo before you listened to this segment uh, alerts you to the fact that we are once more in the trade craft hunt. And this time, perhaps you might want to put in, uh, I don't know, a set of earplugs isn't going to work because then you can't hear the podcast. But right. uh, I don't know. There's some weird science happening. Uh, there's uh, This has been a huge year for uh, spy and espionage news, but this has got to be the most leptonic spy or espionage news so far this year as uh, James Chang... Patreon backer James Chang uh, uh, wants us to delve into uh, a, this is an obvious layup for a, a Ken and Robin topic the Cuban Sonic attacks so uh, what's been happening uh, for those of you who have not uh, noticed this is that there's been a rash of mysterious incidents that have uh, targeted uh, US and I also think Canadian personnel in Cuba particularly uh, people working in intelligence and the it's gone so far for the uh, U.S. State Department to recall personnel uh, from Havana because uh, 21 people have reported symptoms including hearing loss, dizziness, headache, fatigue, 
cognitive issues, difficulty sleeping, uh, and the thought is that it's some kind of sonic weapon. And the uh, Cubans are uh, sort of very uh, adeptly playing the role of, we don't know what's going on either. This seems weird to us too. So Ken, where do we start to get a, our arms around uh, this story that sounds like one of us made it up as opposed to uh, being a real thing that's actually happening? Um, well, I mean, you, you begin with, as you say, the the actual facts of the matter, which are that um, a couple of months ago, people started reporting these symptoms and the symptoms uh, vary all the way across the board. None of them quite fit anything. Um, I personally begin with the description of the attacks. For example, one diplomat heard a dissonant noise localized entirely to his bed, cricket noises and grinding sounds, and deafening minute-long auditory sensations, as well as uh, tinnitus um, and uh, dizziness and uh, nausea and even uh, aphasia for specific words, the inability to remember specific words, which sounds like whoever is doing these uh, attacks is at, at the very least an avant-garde film director. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is strong stuff. Right. And, and sonic weapons do exist in the world. Right. Used yes. Against uh, piracy, for example, but they are very loud yes. uh, sonic weapons. Yeah. And what's going on here is uh, aside from the crickets and the grinding and the, you can hear the noise in this part of the room, but you move out to the other side of the room and you can't hear it anymore, which uh, sounds uh, like not the physics we know, uh, that uh, this would have either have to be infrasound or ultrasound. The problem with that is that infrasound uh, would require an incredible amount of energy, probably too much energy, and ultrasound uh, would be accompanied by enormous heat. So, And also the range on ultrasound drops off very, very strongly with distance because it's right. a, a high frequency beam. And so the physics of it are that if they're going to attack from uh, meters, a hundred meters away, they have to use like a truck size projector. And, and people would probably have noticed that is the argument. Um, and uh, the walls would have cut it off. Uh, in, in a way, uh, just the, you know, the physics of, of ultrasound is that it can't go through a wall and it certainly can't go through two interior walls and still maintain an ultrasound, uh, frequency. So ultrasound does seem to be impossible. Infrasound is, I think, a different issue because infrasound can be produced either, as you say, as you suggest, with, with a great energy or, over a longer period of time with extreme low frequency waves. And those are a, uh, have been militarily studied by both us and the Russians since the sixties B, um, uh, are very, very ill understood by, uh, diagnostic people and C sometimes occur in nature. Uh, you get, um, uh, underground water, uh, for example, can flow through, uh, some stone formations and create, uh, infrasound effects. And those, uh, have been posited by people who posit things, spoil sports, many of them, as <laughs> the reason for ghost sightings. Right. And when you cr cross over the symptoms here with ghost sightings, I think that there's some very interesting and, and pregnant possibilities. So I would not rule out infrasound either deliberately as a, a Russian or Cuban attempt to use infrasound to mess with the American 
embassy on the grounds that the Castros, whenever anything looks like it's going to improve relations with America, immediately go and ruin it again. Because if they actually had no embargo and free trade, they'd be, you know, honickered out of there in, you know, a week and a half. Uh, so they have to keep uh, the embargo up in order to survive. And this is an, an attempted provocation that maybe, as has been suggested, accidentally synergized with something else that causes others of these symptoms like, you know, poison from terrible Cuban cleaning solvents. Um, if the uh, American embassy uses a Cuban janitorial staff like they do in Russia, uh, use Russian janitorial staff, then the janitorial staff could just be using garbagey Cuban solvents uh, and cleansers, which leave lots of terrible um, uh, uh, monoxides and other poisons around. And it could be that it's like you go into a, a newly built house and you s- smell those horrible chemicals and you get a weird headache and, and feel a goofy that can uh, synergize with infrasound to create all kinds of weird effects that in many cases are top secret and in many other cases aren't studied because you'd have to have a human volunteer to poison themselves. And those are <laughs> quite rightly not easy to come by. Right. So that's the, the ototoxin theory, which right, is yeah. that they have been uh, poisoned by something that uh, then uh, harms your auditory system, which of course, um, hate to break it to you podcast listeners. We're all made of meat, including yep. the part of us that hears things. And so if there's something that's breaking down the, the uh, tissues or the uh, audio receptors in your, in your noggin, uh, that could be uh, a, a chemical origin for it. And uh, the other theory, uh, speaking of people who uh, posit things and are bummers, is the psychogenic illness theory. Right. Now, uh, this is not that theory that posits that the illness is imaginary, but just that it came from imaginary place and became real. So psychogenic uh, illness, sometimes uh, sick building syndrome is uh, blamed on a psychogenic effect because it turns out that all of the symptoms mentioned so far are ones that uh, can be generated in a situation where you think there is an epidemic that uh, affects you. And so that all of these actual physical manifestations, uh, which could, you know, and if something is, is going haywire in your brain because you're, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the nocebo effect. You've convinced yourself that something bad is happening. That could explain all sorts of really bizarro auditory hallucinations, like there's crickets over here and not over here, or there's a, a grinding sa- uh, sound and so forth. That's uh, psychogenic illnesses itself controversial because people who uh, want to... Uh, uh, further the cause that the building that they're in is full of all sorts of nasty chemicals, which it could easily be. Don't want that dismissed by someone saying, oh, well, it's it's just uh, just mass hysteria. But psychogenic illness uh, does appear to be a thing, and uh, that conveniently explains all of these symptoms and uh, uh, all manner of other weirdness. And it also explains course, why the Canadians would have it. Right. Because they, you know, presumably are the people the American diplomats and spies in Cuba talk to most often is their fellow North American Five Eyes buddies uh, who all speak uh, English and all have, uh, you know, proper uh, appreciation for uh, two oceans and hockey. And so and are the go to diplomats. Right. For uh, helping smooth things out between the U.S. and Cuba, because Canada has had normalized relations with Cuba for decades Mm -hmm. and that mitigates against an explanation of all the Cubans are targeting the Americans and the Canadians. That is something uh, that is, would not be in their interest. Not that 
people always do things according to what seems to be yes. their rational interest. <laughs> Elderly dictators often act outside their interest. This has been news to no one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not mentioning any other names. But the um uh but that could explain uh the Canadian part of it more yes. easily than um an infrasound attack could explain the Canadian part of it because or, or having the same weird solvents. Right. And- right. Um, uh, well, the same weird solvents could be a thing just because it's what the Cuban government supplies to all the janitors. And so they could be. But then the question would be why not the Norwegians? Right. And And then the Israelis and everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could be a combination of weird solvents that make you more susceptible to a psychogenic symptomaticity, right? That you, you've noticed this sort of weird, crappy smell in the air and you've got a little bit of a headache. And then you hear from your buddy, the American spy that, the Cubans are using infrasound to to make us all forget words and go crazy, and then you psychogenically develop those symptoms. So it could be a kind of a six of one, half dozen of the other, and all that the Norwegians and the Israelis and the British have is just, you know, a weird-smelling embassy for a while. Right, because uh, next to the, uh, you know, noises of invisible giant crickets, the aphasia is the eeriest of these symptoms, uh, but we've all had the experience of uh, struggling for a word. And if you think you're under sonic attack and then all of a sudden, perhaps because you're stressed and tired and can't sleep, but you <laughs> suddenly, you know, can't find words or you say the, you know, you substitute the wrong word uh, for the word you're groping for. That is something that you would ordinarily forget as soon as it happened to you. But here would seem uh, numinous. But I would like to say for the record that any misstatements uh, of fact or vocabulary on this show are due to Cuban sonic attack. Um, yeah, that's been true since episode one. Right. Yeah. We've just been the bigger men about it and not made a thing out of it because we're trying to reach out. Yes. And whenever anyone's comment is, I'm surprised you didn't mention X or Y or Z when we're listing things, Cuban sonic attack. Well, now, uh, this goes back to one of the, the formative terms on the show, Elliptonic rays. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, explain to newcomers what those are and how this could, in fact, be a, an elliptonic attack. All right. The elliptron uh, weapon is a weapon that was uh, revealed to the world by the beloved Soviet, then Russian government official, Vladimir Zhirinovsky. And um, uh, the elliptron weapon produces any number of uh, magical uh, effects. Um, it, it might be a, a super powerful laser. It might be a, a sonic beam. All Jernovsky has told us is that it's an ultimate weapon and it will destroy us. And so the, um, uh, uh, ellipton device famously has a, uh, a sort of a life bane effect. It was, um, uh, meant to kill you, uh, invisibly and from a distance. So, if you like tune it down, it just sort of messes you up invisibly from a distance. Right. So this could be a Cuban uh, project to uh, mimic the Lipton ray, which presumably is a tool of the the sinister West. Right. Um, or uh, a Russian attempt, and uh, you know, it would be more plausible di- deniability than they're going for recently. To just go Vladimir and- Vladimir Zhirinovsky said that um, uh, the Soviets have it, then the Russians have it. It's not the Sinister West. Oh. Sinister West is well behind the heroic East in elliptron oh. technology. So my he, friend. Was, he was bragging. He was bragging. He was saying, "Don't be so smug about your 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 Cold War winning guys, because, because we will we unleash the elliptron on you. We will unleash the elliptron ray." So someone has gotten uh, a decommissioned elliptron device from Zhirinovsky's. Uh, vault and uh, might be messed around with it. Might right. be some sort of, uh, you know, unauth- it's some kids, um, punk kids joyriding 
have uh, boosted a, an elliptic device, under, right? Uh, or the or they were testing one and uh, in Soviet times in Cuba, and then they lost track of it, like they lose track of things all the time, right? So again, and punk kids have found it, right? Yeah, punk kids or punk Cuban uh, DGI officials, one or the other, right? Um, and uh, as we suggested earlier, there's a possibility of you know big time real estate development uh, in Cuba when the regime uh, finally fully adjusts itself. So this you know this could be in the hands of real estate developers uh, trying to uh, you know make room for their uh, their scheme. And so I will have to send down uh, some uh, teenagers and and a dog to uh, start start it all out. Yep. Uh, let me let me just give you the quote, the original 1993 quote from Vladimir Zhirinovsky. Uh, with th- with them, we will destroy any part of the planet within 15 minutes. Not an explosion, not a ray burst, not some kind of laser, not a lightning, no, but a quiet and peaceful weapon. Continents will be put to sleep forever, and then there will be another tsunami. So right. it's climate control and elliptic rays, the whole nine yards. The, the, the elliptic rays sound hugely paradoxical, but what's not paradoxical is that your uh, folks are going to be very excited to hear this next commercial and even more excited to hear the segment that lays beyond it. The werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds re- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name, and don't forget that's F E N I X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect this podcast from sinister science by joining such Patreon backers as Jason Franzella, Urs Blumentritt, Wayne Peterson, Christopher Gunning, and Neil Dalton. This time around, the History Hut is not our regular History Hut, but it's one that we have to go off into the forest and build ourselves using our woodcraft, and perhaps we are dressed in Anglo-Saxon gear and Maybe we're going to afterwards do a, a ritual that will celebrate the skull of Piltdown Man, because uh, this history hut has been requested by Ethan Cordray, who says, Can you tell us about the Kibbo Kift, 1920s Britain's neo-medieval slash modernist movement of, maybe you'd call it, performance camping? Uh, so this is a, a an interwar movement, as uh, Ethan suggests, that uh, uh, was founded by a guy named uh, John... 
Hargrave. Uh, he did it in response to the idea that the uh, scouting movement, as he knew it then, was becoming, to his mind, uh, uncomfortably militaristic because he was a, a utopian, a utopian sort of in the Fabian socialist uh, uh, spectrum of uh, the British left. And so he decided that what people needed was a, a different mass movement, uh, not just for kids, but also for adults. And he called it uh, the Kindred of the Kibbo Kift, uh, to which the British press responded, the, the KKK? And he said, no, 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 not that KKK. It stands for Kindred of the Kibbo Kift. And oddly enough, he had to keep explaining that. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's, it's like those initials had already been stepped on by somebody. And no amount of uh, announcing that it was actually archaic Cheshire dialect um, uh, made it anyone... It test of strength in Cheshire, don't you? <laughs> why, why do people why, keep Why are people keeping a perfectly reasonable out. term, the Kibbo Kift? And of course, they're the kindred. What else are they going to be? The exactly. children of the Kibbo Kift? That, then it's CKK. That doesn't stand for anything. Exactly. That's not three Ks in a row. Uh, so, was John Hargrave on your uh, uh, radar before Ethan posed this question to us? Yes, I knew all about John Hargrave from the wonderful book, The Occult Establishment by James Webb, whose uh, argument is that, contrary to received historical opinion, uh, people in charge of the world have been crazy pretty much forever. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. That that that's that's a shock to us. Yeah, it's it was it's a shock to historians who like to believe in um uh, you know uh, people not being crazy, I guess, so that right. they can make well, sense. Well, they have of it. the great man theory. They don't talk quite so much about the the dumb man theory. Which no, you have to you have to believe that um uh, that all the crazy will wash out, even if you're not a great if you're a a post great man historian. You social history is not supposed to be about crazy nonsense. It's supposed to be about how everyone is working sort of together to invent pottery or something. Thing. Thank goodness for Barbara Tuckman. That's all I can Thank say. Thank goodness for Barbara Tuckman. Um, although that's a different topic. But anyway, I knew all about the lovely and talented uh, John Hargrave, who, like many people in the 19 teens and 20s, was also eugenicist. And that is why, for example, the Kibbo Kift, unlike the Boy Scouts, was open to ladies, was so that um, as you're going out and regenerating yourself and strengthening the race by communion with nature, you will have girls who are doing the same thing so that when you breed later on, you will not be breeding with people who did not regenerate themselves and just ruining the eugenic effect. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that in, in camping yeah. and, uh, and that continues today. Yeah, well, <laughs> six of one, half dozen of the other. The larger point being that he made a, a big deal out of it. He had a fairly all-star cast of uh, on his advisory council, people who at least publicly claimed that, or publicly allowed people to claim that they were Kivo Kift buddies, including Norman Angel, H.G. Wells, uh, Maurice Miterlink, um, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, the poet, Havelock Ellis, the sexologist, and Julian Huxley, the, I guess, third famous, third most famous Huxley, but, um, uh, also a eugenicist. So lots of, uh, good fun there in the Kibbo Kift. Um, and so it was immediately, as perhaps many movements have been and are, uh, surrounded by crazy people who announced that the, what the Kibbo Kift actually meant was nudism or veganism or whatever else. Yeah. So uh, George Orwell called them sex maniacs. Right. And, and when, uh, uh, Hargrave, 
um, is not explaining that KKK doesn't stand for KKK. He's also explaining that just because there are people who like to photograph fairies in the Kibbo Kift, it is not a fairy photographing movement. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's on the Venn diagram, but right. it's not in the middle of the Venn diagram. Yes, his, his line is, we took them in in little bits and ate the parts which might build our backbone stronger and chucked the other parts away. So he's claiming that the Kibbo Kift will also regenerate all of these crazy beliefs by, you know, exposure to simple ancient Cheshire woodmanship. Yes, clean living and uh, uh, proto-cosplaying. Um, and, and he was also associated with the uh, social credit uh, movement, uh, which is uh, too complicated and uh, off to the side of any known economics or politics to get into here, but it was an idiosyncratic... Uh, economic theory thought up by an engineer who, uh, as an engineer, thought that everybody who had studied economics had to be wrong. Uh, and so that was part of the movement. But it has it, he had a utopian uh, hankering for world peace. Uh, unfortunately for you, it was the uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, version of that. So uh, that's a, a mark against them, I'm sure, in your book. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, another thing that I enjoy about the Kibbo Kift is that their great ideological split came in 1926 over uh, Morris dancing. <laughs> yes, there was a, a split with like the the uh, the group that was both more hardline Marxist and more hardline Morris dancing. Right, but those are those are two splits. The Marxists uh, went off and formed what they, I guess they called the labor. Oh, that's what the Morris dancers want you to think. Right. Yeah. Well, the Morris dancing and Marxism have a great deal in common. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I, I can't do this today. <laughs> 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 one is a one is an empty waste of time pursued by um, uh, people who imagine that they know what life is like, and the other, of course, is Morris dancing. Um, where were we? The um, uh, the the, Kibbo the, Kif- the split, the great split, the great split, uh, the Kibbo Kif split over Morris dancing because Rolf Gardiner, the uh, leading Morris dance enthusiast, uh, felt that it was the key to English mysticism and regeneration. And Hargreaves, of course, felt no such thing. He thought it was going off in the woods and not being racists and not being naked, except in very small amounts. And um, uh, so uh, a gardener led his Morris dancing troupe out of the Kibbo Kift uh, to form um, uh, their own English nationalism, which is right. separate from Celtic nationalism. So, so English uh, or British listeners, when you uh, see some Morris dancing and are annoyed by it, remember it could be naked and racist. As right. Well. It, so. could, it could also be that D.H. Uh, Lawrence was a fan of the um, uh, Gardner faction, um, which I guess means that there was not no nakedness in, in it either. So some of the the exercise wear was it remarked upon as being skimpy. Yes. Uh, both for men and women. Right. And in, you know, 1928, skimpy meant something different than it does now. But still, it was, you know, skimpy is as skimpy does, I guess. You see an ankle and you're, you're gone for the day. Right. And uh, the other thing that um, uh, uh, does not uh, exclude our buddy Rolf is that he and Rudolf Hess were good buddies and agreed that uh, going out in the woods uh, with scantily clad people was all to the good for the race. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so never go to the woods, people. Yes. Stay, stay, stay in the in city. nice, sane, safe cosmopolitan cities. Uh, so, uh, Piltdown Man. Uh, they did, went off and they wanted to... Uh, Commune with the Don Man and get back in touch with the, uh, the, the roots of the, uh, the original, uh, pre-homo sapiens. And so, uh, they accepted the Piltdown Man hoax as, uh, real science, as many people did. That's why they call it a hoax. <laughs> and, uh, so yes. they had a, a big ritual there. And, uh, part of, 
what they were up to was uh, something I've heard more from other people who are interested in making, how do you make a secular mass movement? That the uh, advantage that uh, re religious groups have is that they have a reason for people to get together and commune and do the things that uh, might even be designed into our DNA that fosters a sense of community. So why don't we invent a bunch of cool rituals and go and do those rituals together, and then that will create the sense of a, a mass movement. And uh, later it's like, let's all put on green shirts and go uh, fight and or argue with the people wearing the red shirts and the black shirts. But at this point, it's let's do some rituals. And this uh, is what brings in the uh, occult angle. So uh, I guess if you are deciding what rituals to make up, you're going to uh, hit some occult books and you're going to uh, take some uh, inspiration from uh, Aleister Crowley and others, right? Yeah, I mean, you, Aleister Crowley and uh, then Gerald Gardner are also, at this exact same time in history, going off into the woods and making up rituals about being naked and possibly fascist. And so the... Uh, the sort of the different, it's, it's a distinction, uh, with probably without a difference to a Londoner observing them at the time, uh, much bigger to descendants of those movements, uh, that, um, there is some body of people, uh, that goes off in the woods and attempts to regenerate either magically or racially, uh, the, the people under their charge. And, um, Gerald Gardner is basically, uh, inventing Wicca at the same exact time that our buddy Hargrave is inventing the Kibbo Kift and they're coming out of very much the same movement and they are, uh, sharing some of the same, uh, folkloristic research as, the ideological justification, historical justification for what rituals they are inventing, that um, this is actually the old ways of communing with nature, as has been proven by someone reading a ballad um, uh, that was written down uh, 2,500 years after the people were trying to pretend we are. Right. So quick uh, Trail of Cthulhu scenario. You hear there is a weird manifestation out in the woods. You go, you find what you assume to be a bunch of cultists, and uh, uh, thank goodness it's... Uh, it's the UK, so you don't have your machine guns with you and start opening fire because then you find out, oh, it's it's not uh, there's nothing sinister about us. We're the we're the Kibbo Kift. Don't worry, we're not this Cthulhu thing. We don't know what that is. And then it could either be that they have, you know, happen to pick up some rituals that they've uh, built into their uh, sort of invented system, which just happen to be calling down uh, things that cannot be uh, put back through the gate again, or that they're a uh, complete red herring, except they have some other information that then leads you further into the uh, actual supernatural plot. And I think that we have uh, mentioned, or you've alluded to the fact that the Kibbo Kift wandered around in their green shirts. Um, once wearing uh, uh, paramilitary uniforms was banned in Britain, that sort of took some of the uh, wind out of them, but it right, was... Because the, the original desire to have a less military version of the scouts, this is sort of when the Kibbo Kift goes away, is when Hargrave shifts up his system yet again and goes, well, how about we be very militaristic, right. but in favor of utopian social goals? Yes. And, and Hargrave uh, uh, says um, he wants to emulate the exploits of Lenin and Mussolini and build up the kindred until it is able to control events and assume the government of the country. So you go out and you're like, oh, That's thank God. Sign. They're not, um, uh, they're not uh, Cthulhu worshippers. They're not in league with Shubnagurath. In fact, they're very, very anxious to stamp out the worship of Shubnagurath. And they're uh, weirdly influential in uh, the Labor Party and progressive circles. And maybe 
there's some sort of weird utopian coup being mounted. So perhaps Hargreave is just a human who has been uh, knocked a, a, a little uh, loopy by his exposure to the mythos and is trying to create an anti-mythos uh, socialist utopian dictatorship. Or perhaps he has actually um, uh, been infected by a Shan spore when he's out there in the woods in uh, uh, Britchester. And or, or good old Nodens. Good old He's uh, sort of off to the side and right. has a bit of a nature aspect to it. Yes, with the hunting and the hounds and the and the whole nine yards. Uh, and so perhaps the Kibbo Kift are indeed uh, being themselves colonized by a cult activity and heart and they are and that is what is encouraging Hargreave to attempt to create a <laughs> weird uh, skim- skimpily dressed uh, Bolshevism uh, for Britain. Uh, well, I think we've uh, there's so many angles to that that uh, I we've uh, at least touched on them all. And it's time for us to uh, perform our own ritual, the ritual that will call down another commercial message and the fourth and final segment of this here podcast. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The whir and crackle of unknowable sound, the flowing red drapes, and the smell of coffee welcome us into the television hut. And this television hut is a tell-me-more about the television event of 2017, uh, Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, both Robin and I accorded it the pinnacle, the coveted pinnacle status in Ken and Robin Consume Media, and uh, people clamored for more about it, so... As always, responsive to Clamor, Robin, uh, let's tell them more about Twin Peaks The Return. Right. So uh, we are doing this segment at the uh, end of this podcast. And uh, when we talk about a media property at the very in the very last segment, that's so that we can run rampant with spoilers. So if you have not yet uh, consumed uh, Twin Peaks The Return in its entirety, you may want to uh, switch off the podcast uh, when it starts to get spoilery and uh, undoubtedly come back and join us for the rest of the segment back when you've seen it. So it was awful great, Ken, of Showtime to basically uh, underwrite the uh, financing of eight new David Lynch movies. Right, yeah. That was that was darn <laughs> like good of them. them. all in a row like that. Lynch, of course, claimed that it was an 18-hour movie, which uh, it wasn't. It 
depends somewhat on episodic development for its power. But also, Lynch is uh, happy to play with that because once you've depended on something in Lynch, Lynch has to yank it out from under you or else you're not in a proper Lynch mode. And, and so, yes, it was lovely of Showtime. I like the bit where they, they come to uh, David Lynch and they say, we'd like you to do another season of Twin Peaks. And he's like, great. Um, and they say, and we want you to, um, and they go out and they get all the actors and they say, well, we want you to do nine hours and we want it to, and we want to have uh control because we don't want you to go crazy and david lynch says that i'm walking and and then they come back and say all right how about it's 18 hours and you have total control <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's more money for the here's budget. more money for the budget and um uh, the only sad thing is that them screwing around like that cost us david bowie because of course he would have reprised his role as uh philip jeffries from uh fire walk with me and uh could not do so so we have a little bit of a archival footage of david bowie but we do not have proper crazy Crazy ass David Bowie that we would have gotten if right. uh, they just uh, come up to the dime in 2014. This brings me perhaps somewhat prematurely to one of the the real threads uh, in the show for me. And and when I saw that happen, I'd forgotten that he was in Firewalk with me. And when Bowie appears, even on archival form, I was utterly gobsmacked. And later, you you know, you read up and find out that it was archival and that the voiceover artist credit as David Bowie was not Bowie. But there are so many other people, because the, the lead time of this was so long, in the show who have since left us. It is already just eerie for the fact that it has uh, Catherine Coulson in it and Miguel Farrar. And uh, there's a, uh, uh, the actor uh, who is Mark Frost's uh, dad who plays the doctor is in it. So there's sort of a... Uh, not only is this sort of a reverse Bardo Thodol of uh, a Cooper trying repeatedly to come back from the dead and not quite making it until near the end, but that it, there it is a show that resurrects people from uh, from the dead, people who knew they were dying and people who didn't know that that was going to happen. And uh, the effect of that and your knowledge of those people uh, as it interacts with the text of the film is already uh, puts us uh, in an uh, eerie, strange, displaced state that is uh, definitely the state that you are in uh, throughout the uh, watching of the film. And uh, the Lynch film that it most resembles is Inland Empire. That yeah. It really feels like you are having a dream remembering Twin Peaks, and then your dream has more and more Twin Peaks in it. But it's a weird Twin Peaks. It's not the... And, and as happens in the dream, uh, dead people come back to visit you. Yeah, it's um, and it, it, it's odd because, of course, you and I watch tons of movies that are full of dead people that have nothing but dead people in them. And it's not like we're like, oh, man, Humphrey Bogart is dead. I forgot that. But because I think it's Lynch is playing with this notion of the boundaries between worlds and the boundaries between states of being uh, in all senses, that when we see someone like Harry Dean Stanton show up, even though he died after the show uh, premiered, he died before I watched it. And so there was a, there is that moment of a, a, not just poignance of, Oh, I miss Harry Dean Stanton because he's terrific, but also the, Oh, wow. How weirdly eerily appropriate that we have his presence in this show about spectral presences. Right. Right. It's also uh, a meditation on aging <laughs> that uh, you would just never see a new TV property with, so many people in their 50s and 60s and 70s in it. It's just you. they cast super uh, young, affordable actors in uh, TV shows. And certainly the 
people cast in the original show 25 years ago, uh, Lynch chose them for a sort of a TV glamour, for uh, an, a sort of a, a combination of beauty, but also sort of often American soap opera blandness. And then to see uh, all of these actors, uh, many of whom you haven't seen for 25 years, uh, suddenly again, but their uh, faces are, are, are lined and they uh, are just much older than you would see on television. Right. And if you were uh, saw the original show, you may be thinking of your own aging process a bit. And so that is also something that is uh, deeply shocking and uh, part of the uh, whole kind of uh, spirit of um, entropy that uh, underlies uh, the the show and is one of its major themes. Although shout out to Machen Amick for Woodersoning at that. I mean, <laughs> she looked, I mean, not identical to how she looked in 1991, but next to all of the other teens, she looked, I mean, she could go on a CW show tomorrow is all I'm saying about Machen Amick. And that is also the, 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 an interesting thing because everyone was allowed to age as they actually aged. And so, um, uh, you know, when Bobby shows up with the weird gray hair, they leave the weird gray hair because it's Twin Peaks and things are weird. Yes. And they well, don't and, insist and he, that... He has that dude aging of, uh, you know, he's a silver fox now. Um, uh, and Dana Ashbrook hasn't probably gotten a ton of work since Twin Peaks, but he comes back and he and he brings it. And the I think that there was a great deal of, of not just gratitude to get to be working again, but happiness to be working with this project, which has sort of identified a lot of these actors forever. I mean, even Peggy Lipton, who had a, a storied television career before Twin Peaks is now, I think, in most people's mind, not as um, uh, one of the mod squad or whatever she was, but also, but as Norma from Twin Peaks and to see her come back and get respect and be treated as a, as a real important human being part of the plot instead of a, uh, an obstacle or a, or, a, or, a, or an empty uh, element uh, a, a stage element is is kind of great, and I think that maybe and gets one of the the rare big full moments of uh, joy and happiness and and uh, redemption uh, that the 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 show provides you. Right, it gives you before it goes back before the Orpheus myth kicks back in again. That's mm-hmm. one of the 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 big beautiful uh, moving moments because uh, you know Lynch is playing with all sorts of uh, he's got every emotional uh response in the palette in in this over its length um and i guess we're talking about actors we should talk about the playing style because even in the performance of individual actors uh, like dana ashbrook there are some scenes in which uh, the acting is relatively naturalistic and others in which it is uh incredibly deliberately uh disjunctive and over the top and uh and then of course the thing that you see most is the uh, elongated scenes where there are just big, long pauses that you could drive uh, a truck through that are really causing you to uh, question the very nature of television timing and what you expect uh, from uh, characterization and acting in a television show. And the and and that I think is one of the things that Lynch is doing by having all of these acting styles. Uh, all across it. And so you have, um, when he's playing Gordon Cole, he's playing a very sort of weird, um, uh, exaggerated character. Um, obviously Kyle McLaughlin is playing several different iterations of Dale in several different 
styles. Uh, his style as Evil Cooper is different from his style as Dale, is different from his style as Dougie. And then you get a, a, a what do you want to say, a relatively neophyte actress like uh, Krista Bell comes on. And where if in a normal TV show, she would stand out in Twin Peaks. She's just her, her sort of I'm a singer and a model and also I'm in a TV show acting isn't bad because it there's nothing to compare it to. There's no standard. And so you get a, a magnificent actor like Robert Forster can do his thing and be magnificent. And an actor who is um, either playing it very broadly or uh, not uh, particularly um, adeptly doesn't like fall out of the scene that the way they would normally, because uh, part of Lynch's message, I think is that every individual person is creating their own reality all the time. So that's part of why you have Michael Sarah show up and do a really terrible, uh, a Brando impression is because Lynch is saying everything is welcome here. And right. It, right. And it's not terrible by accident. It's, ex- <laughs> and, and it's not his usual Michael Sarah uh, thing either. That there's right. something uh, going, there's something weird in the rhythm that suggests uh, the underlying theme of the whole thing, which is that this is a, uh, I've talked about Yellow King being rally horror. Uh, if there's one thread that undergirds everything, this is reality noir. Right. That it's the very foundations of, of our reality are coming apart and their reality sliding into each other like different tectonic plates. And so the different reality levels of the performance underlie that. And so uh, when Michael Sarah shows up, it's like, could this be very significant or could it be? completely out of left field because you're also given the feeling that you are seeing one of a number of possible versions of the new Twin Peaks show that there are like the scenes in the roadhouse where the young people who in a reconfigured, you know, in the CW version of right. the Twin in Peaks, CW movie, Twin Peaks, they would be the stars. They would be the main characters and their plot line with this guy they keep talking about would be the plot line of the show. And then occasionally you would look over and then there'd be a guest star appearance by a, a previous cast member here, you get the sense that there's another Twin Peaks show going on, but you're only seeing little glimpses of it and not even necessarily, definitely not the main, most exciting parts of it. But And so you get this other show that you don't quite understand what's going on, just as if you've not memorized every single detail of the previous 25-year-old episodes, there's no uh, hand-holding right. in terms of introducing you to the mythos that you are in a a weird world and you'd better go and read the AV club review to get all of the references. You're expected to go off and find the marginal notes. And, and, and what's funny is um, Lynch. And again, this is not his first rodeo. This is not his 15th rodeo. And he's one of the least expository filmmakers in the world. And he deliberately puts, I don't know, three or four, as you know, Bob speeches into the show that of course explain nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're completely useless. A lengthy monologue explaining why the why the the guy from London has the super powered hand. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's just and it's and it's the weirdest thing. And it, so much of it is, as you say, that there are a lot of overlapping Twin Peaks happening, and that I mean, one of the things that I really value in anything, especially in genre media, is the belief that the world extends off the stage, that there's more stuff going on, that someone has maybe come in from a different movie, that something else is happening, that it's not just these nine guys walking to Mordor, that there's all kinds of universe going on outside it. And Twin Peaks 
because it's about this interpenetration of realities and interpenetration of universes gives me that in, you know, carload lots, because like you say, there's the kids in the roadhouse, uh, twin peaks. There's the old fashioned twin peaks that sort of, uh, uh, Norma is the, is the focus of there's the Audrey storyline, which is just sort of its own weird thing that's happening. And we're like, but that makes no sense. And then, you interrogate yourself and say, why does it make no sense? Audrey lives in Twin Peaks. <laughs> of course, she's going to have some weird own crazy uh, 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 little person and white room storyline that, that isn't connected to anything. The the hallucination of meeting the dead and watching Twin Peaks may be hers. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's all it, it's all in it's all in the in the mix. And then, of course, uh, at the very end, when Dale steps out into Twin Peaks, but it's not the Twin Peaks that he remembers and the houses are different and people are giving Twin Peaks references, but they don't make sense in context. That's recapitulating the whole show again. And right. you can't say that ending was unfair or it wasn't built to because in a way that ending is what the whole show is about. That, uh, and it's shot in a completely different way. It's there's a mm-hmm. couple of weird things happen, but they're weird things that could happen in our real world in that final segment. And, or they're weird things caused by the, in break of a cartoon character into a real world. And right. It's shot and lit completely differently. It's suddenly yeah. using lots of handheld and documentary techniques. And, and McLaughlin's acting um, uh, uh, changes again. He becomes more of a naturalistic actor in that last bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as those of us who have read the marginal notes know that the house that they go to is the real house that was used right. as the exterior location. The people they meet are the people who really live in that real house. And the suggestion, of course, mm-hmm. is that uh, by... Uh, getting hubris at the end and not just defeating Bob, but then trying to reverse everything and mm-hmm. bring Laura back that, and he seems to reverse it to a point, but not enough to get her back. And now he's gone into another reality, which may be uh, our reality. Now, I guess we haven't talked about the elephant in the room, the uh, Kubrickian Stan Brackage episode. That is just a episode uh, eight episode eight. That is also utterly uh, gobsmacking in terms of something that would be, you know, on commercial television, uh, the single most compelling hour of television I have ever watched. I don't know that it's the best hour of television that I have ever watched, but it is the hour of television that most amazed, overwhelmed and grabbed a hold of me and would never let me think of a second of anything that wasn't it except, Oh my God, are you watching this other people who I know would like it? Yes. The, the moorings are just gone and the, all semblance of what a television show uh, is meant to contain has has gone. Is there any dialogue? There's very little dialogue, if if any. There's a and little at the very beginning, and then in the scene in uh, when they go to the fifties, the the kids have dialogue. Right, and explains it, it explains the mythos. It explains yeah. what's going on. It's the, you know that's the other level of the show is the the uber metaphysical level of the battle between the uh, bizarro. Uh, good guys in the battle of the uh, uh, demons who've been loosed into the world through the uh, atomic testing. And, uh, you know, you uh, get a little bit of a sense of how the giant played by uh, Carol Strykin and the uh, the one-armed man and the evolution of the arm. Uh, perhaps, the, you know, the evolution of the arm is going to evolve and become the arm of the one-armed man and then have two arms. We don't know. Uh, I don't know if we're all going to make it uh, for another 25 years yeah, to, to revisit all of these. I, I, I'm hoping that um, uh, we, we get, uh, it took, what, two and a half years for them to write and shoot uh, this. So even if Showtime called him up tomorrow and said, David Lynch, more Twin Peaks now, um, we probably don't get it until 20, you know, 
2020, but uh, I'm pretty sure that Showtime is just as confused and baffled as everybody else. <laughs> and um, yeah, we may not get it for another 25 years, or we may get it, you know, a Twin Peaks every three years like we used to get Star Wars and be happy with that. Or or like Agent Cooper, we may just be trapped in our reality forever. Yeah, right. It, it, who can say? Um, yeah, I also want to, I mean, I want to point out the thing that I personally enjoyed so much about the show is that I could never tell what was coming. No. <laughs> and if you, I mean, Robin, you've written whole books on uh, story beats, and I have at least been a literate consumer of filmed entertainment for my adult life. So most things, yeah, you know what's coming, and maybe you're surprised by the dialogue or the specifics or the shot, or you're at least thrilled by it because the director is good or the acting is good. But in terms of surprise, in terms of I did not see that coming, that happens maybe one time out of a hundred. In a, in a movie or a TV show, and that's a generous guess. Uh, but in Twin Peaks, it happened every, every every episode, multiple times during the episode, and uh, the thrill of not knowing is such a forbidden or forgotten thrill that I think it may have confused a lot of people uh, that they were having this reaction that they have been very carefully trained by sort of uh, Disney media and uh, standard series television out of uh, not even discomfort, but the shock of the um, uh, of the juxtaposition of things that don't belong together. The, the original modernist, it's sort of, you get a sense of why people would riot at a ballet in 1913 or whenever it was. Right. Because there's, uh, there's no, uh, you know, the standard setup for it, for any commercial popular narrative is set up a, a group of expectations and then deliver them in an unexpected way. Uh, well, this uh, set up expectations that it then never dealt with again <laughs> right. uh, or dealt with glancingly. So what's up with the, the uh, demon creature in the box in New York at the beginning that gets so much attention? Well, it has something to do with it. It's, it's uh, some sort of Bob-like manifestation, but it kind of comes in a bit, but it's not paid off at the end. And there's, uh, as you suggest, the the Audrey thing is, uh, and when you finally do see uh, uh, Cheryl and Finn sh- show up, you go, oh, finally, finally. And then, again, it's something that toys with your expectations and that it's nature as a, uh, you know, if you're willing to go along with that ride and accept the fact that your the only expectation that will be fulfilled is that your expectations will not be fulfilled. Uh, if you're down with that, as you and I are, uh, it is a you know a work of compelling uh, genius, and uh, if you uh, want to know what's up with that thing at the beginning, or you wanted everything paid off the way that uh, Ed and Norman's story are, or you know what seems to be the definitive uh, defeat of Bob, well, we have closure there. But there's so many other uh, doorways that have opened, and that uh, once you go through them, you may be uh, stuck in them uh, forever. Which is not a function of this podcast, because unlike uh, the world, the many uh, realities of Twin Peaks. There's only one Ken and Robin talk about stuff, and this particular one of Ken and Robin talk about stuff is done for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Ask Fagown, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Canon Robin. Hang out with the evolution of the arm alongside such patrons as Neil Kaplan, Oren Gashuri, Paul Richmond, Rafe Ball, and Jesse Lowe. Snag Ken. 
and Robin Apparel and other Air Udite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>